Once upon a time, there was a young shepherd, a boy after God's own heart. He went from tending sheep to leading armies, from wearing a sword to wearing a crown. He was one of history's greatest kings who committed one of history's most infamous murders. His rise built a kingdom. His fall would tear it apart. Good morning. It is great to see you guys this weekend. I want to welcome you to Seacoast. My name is Josh Surratt, and I am the campus pastor here at the Long Point campus. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us at another location as well. Maybe you are uh, at the chapel, warehouse, or one of our off-site campuses. I want to especially welcome Columbia this weekend and Patrick Connolly. What a great job they're doing up in Columbia. Would you guys as a Long Point campus help me welcome Columbia uh, campus? It's going to be a great weekend. I, I want to ask a question first of all. How many of you guys would be honest? It's church, by the way. I'll preface that. Would you, would you be honest enough to tell me that you watched at least some of the Casey Anthony trial? Anybody? A couple of you guys? Okay. A handful. A lot of liars, and then a lot of you guys actually watched it too. Uh, I, I didn't watch much of it at all, actually, until the verdict came down. And after the verdict came down, I'll admit, I kind of got captured by the whole thing and wondered what went on. And so I went back and reread some of the stuff. And, and it was amazing to me to see how the entire nation was kind of captivated by this trial. They called it the social media trial of the century. And uh, why, why did it spread so much? Why did it catch on so much? And I think, obviously, there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is whether you believe that Casey did it or didn't do it, I think all of us could relate to the fact that this young child deserved better than that. You know, any, any child deserves better than that, and especially if you're a parent, you know, something related to that. And, and of course, her, her situation was very extreme, uh, and all, but all of us probably have had situations with our children where we've said, you know, they probably deserve better than that. Uh, whether we talk to them too harshly or mishandle the situation of discipline, whatever it might be. I know I've had some, and all of us can relate to a little bit of drama going on in our families. And the good news for you guys, any of us that are here today, is regardless of how much drama you've got going on in your home, you're going to feel better after we uh, talk today because we're going to deal with a situation in David's family that was horrendous. I mean, terrible, terrible situation. Kind of looking at parts of David's fall now. As a leader, but before we jump into it, uh, I want to give a couple of disclaimers. Uh, the first one is this message will probably be PG-13, and it's not because we're going to belabor uh, the, the point at all. But the situation that we're going to deal with is just heavy. A lot of crazy stuff that happened, and it's in the Bible. We're going to cover it. I thought about skipping it, but we're not going to. But at the same time, I don't plan on having my kids read Second Samuel chapter 13 until they're like 35 years old, because it's just some crazy stuff. And so I just want to warn you: you may want to take your children, utilize. Uh, the family ministry that we have available here at Seacoast, uh, if you've got younger children in the room. Uh, second disclaimer is that I am not a parenting expert. We're going to talk a little bit about parenting, and I've been doing it for four years, so it's not that I've got this figured out by any means, but I am learning from some great mentors and excited about the possibility of raising my kids, uh, but there's definitely family drama that goes on in our home. In fact, I read an article this week, and it talked about, it compared raising toddlers to being at a frat party, and I related to that. Uh, here's a couple of comparisons. Some of you may relate to some of these. There are half-full, brightly colored plastic cups on the floor in every room when you wake up in the morning. <laughs> Several in the bathtub. Some of you guys can relate to that. There's always that one girl bawling her eyes out in the corner. I know that as happens in our home. Little, little girl, don't know what's going on with the emotions. Half of the people in the house have no control over their, their digestive function, uh, which is true. 
you sneak off to the bathroom knowing that as soon as you sit down, someone's going to start banging on the door because they need to get in. Then you've got someone in your face at 3 a.m. who needs a drink. Happens a lot in our home. And lastly, uh, and I definitely relate to this one, you're not sure whether anything you're doing is right. You just hope that it won't get you arrested. So I know I can definitely relate. So not, not a parenting expert. Last disclaimer is that anytime we do a message on parenting, there are going to be some of you that are here today uh, that are going to have a tendency to feel guilty or condemned. And maybe you've raised kids. Maybe you have kids that are doing kind of not making great choices. And let me just say this about parenting. You can do the right things. You can p- raise your kids in a godly way and still have them make disappointing decisions. And it happens. In fact, most of them do at some point in their life and have to learn things the hard way. And so my prayer today is that for a lot of us, we will feel maybe conviction in our parenting. I know I have in preparing for this message to make some changes, repent of sin, repent of where I've struggled. Uh, But if any of us walk out of here feeling guilty or condemned, then that was not the Holy Spirit. That was the enemy. So just kind of have your horns on for that or your, your ears up and put horns on it. That's the that's that's the phrase I was going for. Put horns on it. It's from the from the enemy. So that's that. Also, there are some of us that aren't parents. And for you, I would say, first of all, the principles that we'll be talking about apply to all of our life. If you want to have influence over people, if you want to have influence over friends, maybe in a job, have influence. And so these are principles that work in all aspects of our life. We're just going to narrow them down and focus on parenting for part of our time together. So let's kind of jump in and and, and get started. If you're new to Seacoast, we've been spending the entire summer in this series called The Rise and Fall of David. And it's been fun to just kind of start with David as a shepherd boy, uh, kind of in obscurity. And we've seen him become king and we've seen him become an incredible leader. We've seen him win some amazing battles uh, and had success as king. He's got all the money that he could ever need. And but we've also seen him a couple of weeks ago experience some moral failure. Pastor Ernest talked with us about his sin with Bathsheba and did a great message on the consequences of our sin. And today we're going to look at some of the ripple effect that that incident with Bathsheba had on his family. And frankly, it's not not a real pretty story. If you have your Bibles, you may want to open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. That's where we get the story. And I'm going to paraphrase most of it. Uh, It's got three main characters in the story. You've got a brother and sister, Absalom and Tamar. And then you have their half-brother, Amnon. All of them are children of David. So uh, Absalom and Tamar, brother and sister, half-brother Amnon, who's born of a different mom. But all of them had the same father, which was David. And shortly after David's affair with Bathsheba, his son Amnon begins to develop these feelings for his half-sister, Tamar. And the Bible says that these feelings kind of developed over time and he, he gave way to him he, and it became an obsession for him to where all he could think about was his sister, Tamar. And then eventually it says that he became physically sick over these feelings. So instead of talking to his dad about it, he consults with a friend. And the friend, the Bible calls him a very shrewd man. And just as a side note, parents, if we aren't willing to talk to our kids about some of the awkward things that they go through in life, some of the difficult situations that they, they, they deal with, they're going to find somebody that will talk to them about them. It'll probably be the media, maybe the internet, TV, maybe a friend at school. Chances are that that person who talks to them or that influence that shapes them in that area of their life is probably not going to share your values. And so, parents, it's important that we're willing to talk to our kids even about the difficult, awkward uh, issues that we face in life. So David didn't. And so this friend of his kind of validates that feeling. It says, yeah, you're right. You should feel that way. In fact, let's figure out a way where we can help you act on that feeling. And so he devises a plan. And he basically talks Amnon into acting like he's sick 
And so Amnon pretends like he's sick, and then David, his father, comes in to check on him. And because he's not really tuned in to what the issues are in his son's life, uh, he kind of stays up on the surface. Son, what's going on? Why are you sick? And his son says, Dad, I think that, I think that if you would call for my sister Tamar to come in and, and make me a meal, it might make me feel better. And so David's like clueless. So he says, all right, well, dude, let's do that. So he calls in his sister, and his sister comes in, Tamar, and she cooks him this meal. And she brings it to him. And he kind of has everybody else leave the room. And as she brings him the meal, he makes a move on her. And she's like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? This is not right. This is, you, you need to think about what you're doing. This is going to cause you to go down in, in history as one of the great fools of Israel. And she kind of tries to stop it. But he's stronger than her. And he forces himself on her and he rapes her. Terrible, terrible situation. And, and by the way, after Amnon does this, here's what the Bible says. She, he's been so obsessed with this girl, and then he commits this sin. And in verse 15, it says, Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And that's pretty typical with sin. You know, sin tends to oversell the good side on the front end, kind of build this up. It's going to be great. You want to do this. It's going to be awesome. And then as soon as you see it for what it is, and you experience the consequences of what sin does in our lives, we, we, we hate it and we regret it and it brings us this terrible feeling. But, but so this is what happens. Devastating situation uh, with these two siblings. A great time for David as a leader to step in and take some leadership, kind of help them process what's going on. What does David do? Look at verse 21. It says, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. And that's it. He gets mad and he should have gotten mad. But the Bible says he didn't do anything about it. He just got mad. He, he didn't talk to Amnon about what he had done. He didn't get the support that Tamar needed uh, to kind of deal with the emotions that would have definitely come out of this situation. He just got mad. And guess who else got mad? Absalom, who is Tamar's full, full brother. He gets mad as well, and he kind of watches to see what David does, and David doesn't do anything. And so a couple of years pass by, and Absalom just stews on this anger, and he gets more angry and more angry. He brings Tamar into his own home to take care of her, and he sees the damage that it's had on, on his sister. And so he devises a plan. He calls a family reunion, gets all the siblings together, gets his, son, his brother Amnon to drink too much, and then he kills his brother Amnon. And so now... David's not only dealing with when he had the affair with Bathsheba, you'll remember he had an infant that was born that died as a result of that. Now he's got a daughter that is just dealing with major emotional issues. The Bible says she never really gets over it. Now he's got a son, Amnon, who's dead in the wake of all of this. And it doesn't even end there. Because after Absalom does that, he flees because he knows his dad's going to be upset with him. But the Bible says that David didn't do anything about Absalom either. He didn't talk to him uh, about it. And so Absalom runs away. And he begins this revolt, and he has this idea, you know what, I'm going to take over as king. I'm going to take my dad out. And long story short, uh, he gains a lot of momentum, tears the kingdom apart, and eventually David's mighty warriors killed Absalom, his son, in battle as well. So now, if you're keeping track, that's three children that have died, all in the wake of this sin with Bathsheba. And so here's the main point that I want us all, and it kind of stood out to me as I read this story. All of it stems back to this affair that he had with Bathsheba. And, and, and you may want to write this down. The stakes are always higher than you think they are with sin. The stakes are always higher. There is no way that David follows through on his lustful desires if he knows what the ripple effect is going to be in the, in the family. And, and, and there's no way he does that. And we, we always short sell the consequences. And so the stakes are always higher than we think. 
They're higher in our parenting and, and how we handle our kids. They're higher in the, uh, our lives, the sin that we struggle with, that we're tempted to, to, to jump into. The stakes are always going to be higher. So let's learn from David's mistakes on how we can avoid ruining our kids. I don't know if you, sometimes I just, I look at Lisa and go, are we messing up our kids? Because uh, I think we might be ruining them. But let's learn how we can avoid ruining them. And since it's kind of heavy stuff that we're dealing with, I thought that we'd use some old school parenting cliches to kind of help us get through some of these points as we learn some of these lessons. So the first thing we need to do to avoid ruining our kids is teach them to do as I say and as I do. Teach them to do as I say and as I do. See, here's the truth. Everything that I do is going to have an impact on my kids. And that's good news in a lot of ways because when our kids see us uh, making God a priority in our lives, when our kids see us serving God and, and being a part of the church and serving our, our neighbors and loving on people, they're going to pick that up. They're going to catch it. But on the flip side, they're also going to notice when what we do doesn't line up with what we say. And so we've got to make sure that we teach them to do as I say and as I do. Look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. This is a principle. It's written to believers. So these are people who are already saved by, by Christ. But this is the principle. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. And that's a biblical principle that most of us are familiar with. But I think one of the dangers of grace, which by the way, I'm a huge fan of what Jesus did on the cross. I need it. We all need that. That's what, what sets us free. But one of the dangers is that we begin to believe that maybe there aren't consequences for our sin because Jesus has paid for our sin. And that's not the case. This is written to believers and, and it, it, what we reap or what we sow is what we're going to reap. And so that's a biblical principle and that's what David is experiencing in his life here. In fact, if we back up one chapter to 2 Samuel 12, after he had committed the sin with Bathsheba, God kind of calls him out through his prophet Nathan. And here's what God says to David in uh, verse 10 of chapter 12. It says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. He says, hey, there's going to be consequences. There, there's going to be fallout from this sin. And it, the fallout is that the sword is never going to leave your house. In other words, there's going to be internal conflict in your home as a result of this. And David had already shown he could handle external conflict. He could handle, you know, armies of thousands and thousands of people. He could handle giants. He could handle Goliaths. But the internal conflict is what begins to tear his family apart. And that's the fallout that he's dealing with. So, if we sow things like, hey, kids, tell them I'm not home. You know, we'll, we'll call them back later. Or, hey, let's don't tell mom about this particular situation. Let's just keep this between us. Chances are we're going to sow dishonesty or we're going to reap dishonesty into our kids. If, if we sow things like abusing alcohol in our home and then we try to teach our kids how to handle it in the right way, they're going to be confused. There's going to be a disconnect. If we sow things like watching shows that... that that don't uphold the moral values that we're trying to teach our kids, they're going to notice a disconnect. And so we got to be careful that we let our actions line up with our words. David sowed sexual sin and murder as a cover-up. And guess what he reaped? A sexually confused child and sibling rivalry that ends up in the death of several of his kids. So what do we do with our sin? I mean, we all struggle with sin. I'm not saying we should be perfect by any means, but, but what do we do with it? First thing is we've got to repent. You know, Pastor Stephen Furtick talked last week about if when we're in a, dis, a dip of disobedience, we've got to be willing to repent of our sin. And so that's the first thing we do. I noticed 
this a couple of, probably about six months ago, I was driving in the car with Miles and Greta Kate, and Greta Kate was about 18 months old, and she was not in a good mood, and she was letting all of us know about that. She was kind of crying and fussing, and it was kind of getting a little bit frustrating, and so Miles, I was handling it well as a dad. Miles, though, he's sitting next to her, and he's going, Greta Kate, stop, stop crying. So I'm like, hey, Miles, listen, buddy, we can't talk to her that way. That's not going to help things. Just, just be quiet. Let her, she'll work it out. Greta Kate, stop, stop. And I'm like, Miles, stop doing that. That's not how we talk to her. Stop, Miles, stop, stop yelling at your sister. It's like, ooh, bingo, that's where you got it from. Okay. I'm telling him, don't yell, but as I'm getting more and more frustrated, I find myself in the weakest position that you can be as a parent, which is when you're yelling at your kids. You've lost total control. Uh, but I find myself there, and I'm like, ah, okay, I'm, I'm reaping what I sowed. He's seen me do this before. He's picked this up from somebody. And so I had to repent. And Lisa and I had to talk about, hey, uh, can you hold me accountable that I'm not going to, I didn't even realize I was doing it until I saw him doing it. And it was like, whoa, I must be yelling at my kids. He's going to pick up on that. He's got to repent and turn around, get some self-control over some of that stuff. And, and as daddy, I had lost self-control where I'm trying to get my kids to get self-control. And, and where it's appropriate once we've repented of our sin, I would say discuss our sin with our kids, especially where it's appropriate. We have no indication that David ever did that. Uh, the whole nation knew about his sin with Bathsheba, but he never talked to his kids about it, uh, that we know of anyways. And I know that that's something that my parents modeled for us in a really healthy way. I was about 12, 13 years old, and I remember we'd gone to bed at night, and I heard my parents uh, engaging what my dad would refer to as intense fellowship. Uh, they were having an argument in their room, and so I got up to see what was going on, and I walked in there, and they were just, they were, they were upset with each other. They were arguing. They were saying things that they shouldn't have said to each other. Don't worry. They didn't throw anything, or you know, nobody got, got hurt, but, but I noticed as a young guy that this is what was going on, and so my dad saw me, and he said, son, I want you to go to bed. So I went back to bed, and the next morning, I'll never forget what, what they did. They called all of the kids together, said, hey, I, I want to talk to you guys. We're having a little family, family get-together. Last night, mom and dad had an argument, and some of you guys may have heard us talking and saying things to each other that we shouldn't have said, and I want to talk to you guys about that. The first thing that we did, uh, we want you guys to know, is we've apologized to each other, and we've, we've forgiven each other, and we should not have spoken to each other that way. And secondly, I want you kids to know that it's never okay for any of us to to have this kind of talk with each other or with our parents or any of that stuff. And they took it as an opportunity, not a huge deal, but they said, hey, listen, this is what we did. This is where we fell short. And we want you guys to learn from that. And I thought it was a big deal. It left a major mark on me as a kid. And now that I have kids of my my own, I realize it was an even bigger deal than I thought it was because it takes a lot of humility to apologize to your kids, doesn't it? And it takes a lot of humility to say, you know what, I was wrong. Daddy was wrong for doing that, and, and would you forgive me, and let's talk about what we can learn through that for the future. So be willing to discuss where it's appropriate with our kids. So that's, that's the first thing. We've got to be willing to tell our kids to do as I say and as I do. In fact, would you repeat that after me? Do as I say and as I do. Got to live consistently. Second thing we do, second cliche that can help us learn from David's mistakes is this. Even though this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, I'm going to do it anyways. Even though this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, I'm going to do it anyways. Talking about disciplining our kids. Have you guys ever made a threat to your children that you didn't follow through on? I know I've been there many times. And 
Uh, we were at Disney World this past uh, couple weeks ago, taking Miles and Greta Kate down. Both of them have birthdays in July, and so celebrating Miles' fourth birthday. And we had kind of built up that the last ride of the day was going to be the best. It was this jungle adventure boat thing that you go through, and Miles was so excited about it. We were all looking forward to it. And so we get into the line, and we're waiting in line, and Miles starts swinging on a rope that's on the line. And so Dad kind of talked to him and said, hey, let's not do that. We're not going to swing on the rope. And and he ignored that instruction, and he continued to swing on this rope. And so we kind of gave him a warning and said, son, if you, if you swing on this rope again, uh, we're not going to go on the ride. And so sure enough, a couple minutes later, he swings on the rope, and he, he accidentally kicks somebody who's in line in front of us. So we're like, oh, did I, did I really mean that? Um, and, and so Lisa took him out of the line to kind of talk to him. I think we're going to try to give him another chance. And he throws kind of this temper tantrum. And so I go out there, and we're kind of trying to figure this thing out. Do, do we really want to do that? Because, frankly, I would like to go on this ride. You, do you want to, babe, do you want to sit out with him, and I'll take the, the rest of the family? You know, that, it was that kind of deal. And I did the right thing. I let Lisa get back in line. And we sat outside of that, that ride, and he sat down in, in a timeout. And, and, and we watched as these kids and families got off of this ride while we're waiting for the rest of our family to get there. And the joy on their faces, and it just destroyed him. I mean, it killed him. And it killed me. You know, I used to think that discipline was something parents got a lot of pleasure out of. I hated watching my son sit there and, and be disappointed and not being able to go on this ride. But we made a threat, and we've failed on this one many a times, by the way. But we made a threat, and we said, you know what? We've got to stand, stand our ground on this. Our kids have to know that our word matters and means something. And discipline is such a big deal with our kids. The Bible talks so much about it. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. In other words, if we lack discipline in our kids, it will ultimately lead to their death. Maybe it's the death of uh, physically in rare cases, but often it's the death of a lot of positive things that are going on in their life. And it's interesting to me that the guy who wrote that proverb was a guy named Solomon who happened to be a brother uh, to Absalom and, and Tamar and, and Amnon. And so he kind of had firsthand uh, witness of what he was talking about. Hebrews twelve eleven says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And some of you guys need to hear that as parents because it's not pleasant for ch- kids and it's not pleasant necessarily for parents either. But we've got to be willing. Got to know the difference between discipline and punish- punishment and that's something that I'm learning for sure. Discipline is always about promoting growth for the future. Punishment is always about what you did in the past, and it's dwelling on what happened in the past. Uh, the purpose for punishment is, uh, is it's to inflict pen- penalty, and the purpose for discipline is to help them, as I said, grow uh, in the future. The attitude behind punishment is anger. Parents, don't, don't discipline your kids when you're angry. Uh, the, the attitude behind punishment is anger. The attitude behind discipline is love. It's a genuine love and a concern for their growth in the, in the future. So, so don't correct an anger because that always produces resentment in our kids. Say things like, hey, let's, let's make sure that this doesn't happen again in the future. How, how can we make sure to do that? And you, even as you're talking about that with your spouse. So uh, how do we do with this? Well, the Duke of Wellington once noticed, this was a long time ago, he said, you know, the thing that impresses me most about America is the way their parents obey their children. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting indictment. A couple of, couple of thoughts on, on correction and disciplining our kids. First thing is start early. Start early. 
you know, develop a, a, a philosophy of parenting early on. I know Lisa and I started a parenting class. We joined one when she was about six months pregnant with our first child because we didn't knew that we didn't know what we were doing. And we wanted to kind of develop a philosophy on parenting and figure out what we were going to do. And about philosophies, there are a lot of ways to raise your kids. There are a lot of right ways to raise your kids biblically. Uh, so there's all kinds of content and curriculum out there. And develop a philosophy for your family, though. Decide how are we going to do this? What's going to be important? What are going to be the values that we're going to uphold in our kids? You know, I have friends who did the uh, kind of the midwife and had the, the, the uh, water birth. And I've got friends who've done kind of the attachment parenting thing, you know, breastfeed their kids till they're 16. And they've turned out, well, not really. That, that wouldn't, wouldn't go so well. But done things differently than we do. Our philosophy is our kids are a welcome addition to our home. My parents taught us that. They're not going to be the center of our universe. They're going to be a part of a family and learn what it's like to be a part of a team. And, and, but develop your philosophy and don't argue with other parents about the way they're doing it with their kids. Uh, that's, that's not going to be productive for anything, but develop and decide for yourselves, how are we going to do this? And start early. Start early with spiritual development. Second Timothy 3.15 says, you've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. So you've been taught from childhood. Little kids are built for God's word. You know, our kids began memorizing scripture at a young age. And I'm going to have Lisa talk, talk about that in a few minutes. And uh, you, you know, but, but let's start early. Don't bore your kids with God's word. You know, find a Bible that, that is written in their language where they can understand it and make it fun. Don't be afraid to use your God voice, you know, the deep voice and kind of let them get excited about it. You know, here's what kids need to know. Uh, and, and they ask tough questions too. I mean, it's some, sometimes it's like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to answer that. But what I found is my four-year-old boy needs to know that God is bigger than, and, he, and he could beat Spider-Man if he needed to, you know. And my little girl needs to know that God is big enough to protect her and he's big enough to take care of her. And so you kind of whittle it down to the language, but, but start early with our kids. Second thing I would say is live consistently. Live consistently. And I give my parents a, a great report card on this one. You know, the, the, the values that they upheld from the stage here at Seacoast and the values that they talk to other people about are the same things that they taught us and, and, and that they lived out in our home. They created family identity for us, which was awesome. You know, I'm thankful that they, they kind of held their ground and they refused to, to budge on certain things. And it was frustrating at the time as a teenager to hear, hey, I don't care what your friends are doing. We're Surratts and this is how Surratts are going to do it. But they, but they lived consistently and they showed us how to live our lives. Most of what a child learns is caught, not taught. You know, most of the time we're going to pick up, pick up what we see our parents do rather than what we hear them say. So if mom and dad are reading their Bibles and spending time in God's Word, spending time with other believers, living their faith out, repenting of sin, kids are seeing parents go to the cross, they're going to pick that stuff up and they're going to see that you're living a consistent life. And then the third thing is looking for teachable moments. Look for teachable moments. See, the moment you took part in conception... You got a job description. Check this out. I'm going to read it to you. It says, it's this Deuteronomy 6, 7. It's one of my favorite parenting verses. It's kind of the guidepost for everything that Lisa and I do. It says, you must teach these commandments to your children and talk about them while you're at home or out for a walk at bedtime and the first thing in the morning. Here's the job description. Four things I see in it. First is you. You must teach these commandments. You know, it's not the government's job to teach your kids, it's not your, the, the school system's job. It's not even the church's job to teach your kids how to live a godly life. Now, I'll say this about the church. We are excited to partner with you in that. But if, if your strategy for raising your kids in a biblical way is to kind of never talk about your faith throughout the week, but then throw them in the children's ministry and hope that, that we'll teach them something good and then uh, do it again next week, that's not going to have lasting results. 
because that's not the biblical way to do it. The Bible is clear here that it's a, a parent's job to pass these things on, to talk about them at the dinner table, talk about them when you're in the car, talk about your faith with your kids. So it's, it's you, it's me, it's our job as parents to pass that on. The second thing is must, you must teach your kids. So this isn't an option. This is a, a commandment, it's our job. And then you must teach. You know, and as parents, we're always teaching. You know, use their questions as opportunities to teach, as conversation starters. I know Miles asked some tough ones right now. You know, I talked about, Daddy, how big is God? Oh, well, you know, that, that's a tough one. But like I said, talk to him about, kind of put it in their language where they can understand that. Your boys need to know that, that God is big. You know, and, and, and let them be warriors. Let your little girls be princesses when you're talking to them, when you're reading them the scripture. You know, let them, let them envision themselves as a part of it so they'll have fun with it. You know, one time I was riding in the car with Miles and he's asking these questions and this was recently. He said, Daddy, what does that sign say? We were downtown and there was a guy holding a sign. I said, well, Dad, uh, Miles, the sign says we'll work for beer. Well, Dad, what does that mean? Oh, okay. Well, maybe I shouldn't have told you. It's good that you can't read sometimes. Um, and, and so I said, son... He wants to take, he wants daddy to take your college fund and he wants me to spend it on him so that he can drink beer and waste it away. Well, why isn't he working? Well, let's talk about work a little bit. Let's talk about what that means. And so opportunities, conversation starters, and, and those are the moments that you've got to be paying attention for. And those are often the moments that the Bible doesn't give clear instruction for. Thinking about David's life, obviously the Bible doesn't say, you know, doesn't lay out, hey, here's what to do when your child is struggling with these kinds of feelings towards a sister. That's a tough situation, but we've got to be willing to take the situations that come our way and use them as teachable moments. So you must teach, and then the last part of that is we must teach what? The commandments. Not 10 suggestions, but the commandments. We must teach them about Scripture. And you know, I know as a dad, I spend a lot of time teaching my kids how to throw a baseball and how to play football. And you know, we want to teach them to do well in school. We want to teach them all these things about life which are important for us, but not at the neglect of teaching them about God's word. That's the most important thing. That's our most important responsibility that we have as parents. So here's the problem with that. See, kids have a lot more time these days with, with the babysitter, passive babysitter called the television. I know I struggle with that in our home, especially with Netflix. It's like you can always find something for them you know, baby TV, whatever it might be. And so parents, I want to challenge you guys as I challenge myself. Let's not let the, the TV raise our kids. You know, it's going to take time. We can't passively raise our kids. Uh, Cornell did a study that said fathers spend an average of 37 seconds a day in conversation with their kids. That's pretty, pretty weak. So we can't raise quality kids in our spare time. We've got to be willing to teach them. So let's go on to the, the last thing. Discipline's difficult. We got to do it. So, you know, that second point again is do as I say, or not, that's the first point. Do as I say and as I do. Second point, this is going to hurt you, me more than it's going to hurt you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Last thing I want to show you is this. If at first I blow it as a parent, I'm going to try and try again. See, we all blow it. We all make mistakes. We're all going to fall short, but we've got to be willing to continue to try. And by try, I don't mean just try harder at the things that we've blown it in. We're going to learn from them. We're going to repent from them. And we're going to allow Christ to shape our parenting. See, David, we give him a bad rap on parenting and rightfully so in a lot of ways. But if you look at the Bible, a lot of what we learn about parenting comes from a book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs was written by Solomon. 
and Solomon was a younger child of David. And so I believe that David, as, as he, he processed some of what happened with his kids, he, he got it right with Solomon. He still made mistakes, and Solomon picked up some of his bad habits, but he, he began to invest in him this wisdom. And so Solomon wrote this book of Proverbs, which gives us so much good stuff. So, I mean, David got one out of, what, 10, 12 kids, right? My parents only got one out of four. So, I mean, we can keep trying. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. The cool thing about David's story, too, is that it's through the family of David, the broken, torn up, messed up family of David, that ultimately Jesus comes into the picture. You know, God chose to use a broken family, a broken situation, a broken home, broken people, to, to, to enter into that circumstance and to ultimately bring us Christ who brings freedom, who brings salvation for our sin, who brings eternal life. And so it's cool that God loves to take broken families and make a beautiful mosaic out of them. So that's kind of the, the message. As we kind of close our last few minutes, I wanted to invite someone up. You know, my family uh, is pretty traditional. Parents are still married and we have four siblings, get along great. But I know that's not the case for a lot of people, come from different backgrounds of blended families. And so I wanted to bring someone who came from that background to share with us. And I didn't have to look any further than my own home. So would y'all welcome my wife, Lisa, as she comes and shares a couple of minutes with us. Hey there. Hi. So talk, us, talk to us a little bit about your family background. Well, uh, we are sort of a blended family. Uh, my dad was married twice before uh, he met my mom, and my mom was married um, before she met my dad. And um, they both had children in previous marriages. My dad had two daughters. My mom had one son. And after both of their marriages failed, they met, um, and they started dating, and they got pregnant out of wedlock and had me and then got married and um, let's just say they both have testimonies. They both were very far from God uh, when they met. Um, my mom actually met Christ um, while she was pregnant with me and really started to understand what a real relationship with Christ was. And so she just really started praying for my dad. My dad was still very far from God, um, pretty rough around the edges, I would say. He's still a little rough around the edges, isn't he? Well, about as rough as yours. Okay, easy. <laughs> but the year that I was born, uh, my dad ended up, he got caught up in some drug trafficking and um, was actually arrested um, and had a nice room in the Fort Lauderdale County Jail. And that is where he came to Christ. Um, just uh, kind of hit the bottom of the barrel mm -hmm. and just had to look up. And so um, from there, it was a long process of transformation. Um, a lot of hurt had to be healed over a lot of years. Um, you know, even though they were on the, the road to, um, you know, to following Christ, things were still complicated. You know, uh, there were a lot, of, like I said, a lot of hurt um, that had to be healed between um, you know, both of my parents and their, um, kids and between, you know, step siblings and between half siblings. And did I mention it's complicated? <laughs> so, um, over time, you know, as they continued seeking God and really the Lord just really started changing their lives, he slowly but surely just started knitting our family together. Hmm. And he used a pretty tragic situation to he did. catalyst for that. Unfortunately, when I was 19, uh, my eldest sister 
Andrea was killed in a plane crash. And um, it honestly was the most challenging time for our family. Uh, we just thought, gosh, how are we ever going to get through this? And as we were forced to just grieve together, I mean, we were all put in the same place and, um, you know, for a week. And um, unexpectedly, in the midst of just horrific tragedy, God just brought, like, rest so much restoration and healing to our family. Um, would we all take that back in a heartbeat? Of course, we didn't want to lose our our. Andrea, she was a wife and a mom and um, just a beautiful woman. And um, But on the flip side, we just see, saw God work in such an unbelievable way. Um, really, we started to see our family, uh, all these broken pieces put back together. And God just took all these broken pieces and just made this beautiful mosaic. And, uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting now. It's almost... Um, Almost a little weird how close the family has become. Yeah, it's funny. I never really understood why my mom said, you know, we put the fun in dysfunctional. And I thought, I mean, I never saw it that way. It was all I ever knew. Um, but my dad lovingly refers to his uh, ex-wife's current husband as his husband-in-law, you know, because once you, you know, you walk through tragedy and um, just pain with someone Somehow the Lord just allows you to bury the hatchet, move forward, really get crisis center. That's cool. I wanted you to share that because, I mean, I've been on family vacations with, you know, ex-spouses and all that with their family. It's really cool to see, and it's really healthy that God's done that. But just to remind you, because I know there are a lot of us that are here today that are going through maybe a divorce or in the middle of a blended family situation, and to, to just know that God makes uh, a habit out of, you know, doing that, of taking broken pieces of families and blending them together to, as you said, make a, a mosaic that's beautiful. And so it's been cool to see him do that in your home. Uh, and then let's talk about our home. I talked about starting early with our kids. So just talk for a minute. What are some things that we've been doing to, to start early with our kids? Well, first I'd like to say our home is certainly not perfect. We, we definitely hey, have... on stage. We're supposed <laughs> to, you know, just kidding. We have a lot to learn. We'll say that. Um, a few things. First is we're trying, and I encourage all of you, begin as you mean to go. So, you know, right now we have young kids. I know not everyone has young kids, but if you do have young kids, start early and be intentional about where you're going. Because right now their sin is cute. You know, they do silly things and, you know, but it's really our job to start now. And I think that as we um, move forward, I'm hoping that that's going to pay off in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so two is, um, pray together as a family. Uh, I, I can't stress this enough. My mom was such a prayer warrior for our family. And I still remember being a young child and my mom praying over us every night. And I really, that just was so ingrained in me. And now that I'm a parent, uh, it's really neat. We, um, you know, we've, prayed together and we're teaching our kids to pray and you know as Josh has talked about our four-year-old he we asked him to say prayer at um, his birthday party before we ate and he I was expecting him to you know go God our father you know and he just bust out with a you know Lord Jesus I thank you for this family I thank you for this food I was like well little Surratt you preach it <laughs> 
So the other thing is um, keep it fun. Don't wait till you have to correct them to start teaching them godly principles. For sure, those are great times to teach them principles. But also uh, one of the things we do is um, we are trying to get our kids to start memorizing scriptures. And there's uh, truth cards, which, you know, they're basically um, flashcards with um, some really, you know, some easier verses and some harder verses. Uh, and we started working with him. And I think, you know, it's really neat to just see your kids start picking up, you know, when you're correcting them and you say, you really need to be kind. And then he's, what, what's that scripture you learned about kindness? And, you know, really starting to relate principles back to the scripture. And we were shocked. You know, I talk about some of the challenges with Miles because those are sometimes the more funny stories. But the kid at two, uh, two and a half years old, had memorized like 20, 20 verses through these truth card things. And so they, they pick them up and they, they, mm -hmm. they do well with them. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I think family identity. I think that's one of the most important things. Uh, I want our kids, when they are, you know, grown and gone, um, to still remember being a part of something. And, you know, when you have a strong family identity, you are really going to ingrain just, you know, that, that special, there's, there's no one that has that bond with your kids. You have that opportunity to make a family identity. And some of the things that you, you choose to do as a family that makes you your family um, is so important. We do Friday Family Fun Day, and we, you know, we really try to make a big deal about it. We guard it. We don't do any meetings. We try not to check email. We, you know, try to stay off the Internet. We just basically focus in on just spending quality time with our kids. And um, I think teaching your kids to be best friends, uh, you know, they, if they're best friends, that's a best friend for life. And so when they go through life's challenges, they're going to lean on each other. Miles so, didn't get that at first, did he? No. Uh, it's funny. When Greta Kate was born, uh, that transition was just tough. You know, he was two and bringing home a, a, a newborn. He thought, great, you just brought me this, my own personal tackling dummy. So we really had to work hard on trying to figure out, okay, how do we teach him to protect her? And so he's the warrior and she's the princess. And now he, he has really taken hold of, I'm the warrior. You can't touch my princess, you know. So that's really a neat thing. Now Precious. we have to teach him not to bow up on other kids who look at his princess that's right. wrong. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, obviously we're, we're learning a lot of way. I wanted to ask you if you would mind just praying. Um, for us today as we close out the message and praying for the parents that are here, some that are in various stages of parenting, some that are not parents, but maybe kids who are dealing with uh, issues with parents as well. So would you mind closing us in prayer? Sure. Father God, we just come before you so grateful, Lord, for um, the responsibility to be a parent, God. And um, Lord, we just, I know that um, each individual person that you've brought into this room is in a different situation, God. And no matter what, they are going through no matter what stage of life they're in, Father. I just know that you you care so deeply for them, Father. You you care for um, your word says that even the spirit that falls, you care about. And that you're close to the brokenhearted, Father. And I just pray that whatever circumstance, whatever situation um, we're in, Father, you just want to wrap your arms around us and let let us know that you care. Father, I just 
pray that um, each person would just find strength in you, that they would choose you, that they would choose to make you the center of their lives and of their family. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for what you did for us on the cross. In your name, amen.